into a kind of privatized, individualized, individualistic kind of religion in which, you know, I say it's, it's, I have a personal relationship with God, and by that, I don't always just mean a relationship to God as a person to a person. I mean, I have my private relationship with, with Jesus, and I can do Christianity on, on my own. I can do it all by myself, thanks. I don't need church. I don't need worship services. I don't need sacraments. I, 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 I got this covered. I can do it. Me and God, we have this thing. That's what we very often think in a North American context, and it's not at all what the Protestant reformers envisioned. And so on this Sunday, we're, we're really drawing to a conclusion, a four-part series about worship, corporate worship, gathered worship. The, the first week, four weeks ago, we talked about worship as longing, where worship isn't about having this immense, immediate experience of God that you interpret as the Holy Spirit. That can happen, but that's not normal. Rather, worship is about longing for God and growing in our longing and our hunger for him because a day will come in which this pilgrimage of worship together draws to a close as we see God face to face beyond this life. The second week, we talked about the voice of worship, how worship always has a direction. Its direction is, is vertical. It's towards God. God is the object of our worship because he is worthy of worship and praise because he made you and he redeemed you. Yet we also talked about how there is a secondary direction in worship that is horizontal as we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and sing and make music in our hearts to God. How how part of the purpose of worship is that you would be encouraged by hearing the voice of worship from each other because you need each other. The third week last week we talked about the remembrance of worship, what it means when we say that Christ is genuinely spiritually present in the Lord's Supper when we receive it by faith. And that he renews his covenant with us objectively as, as Christ says, when I see you breaking my bread, when, when I see you drinking this cup, as you proclaim my death, when I see you do this together in corporate worship as my people, I will see from heaven what you are doing and I will remember my promise and I will save you completely as I have given you my word in sacrament form, the blood of Jesus Christ, his body broken. For us. This week we turn to yet another theme as we look at the family of worship, the family of worship which Christ died to create. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 19 to 25. If you want to follow along with me, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the holy of holies in the temple, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What is Jesus saying here? I want you to take a second and just look around at the people in this room. Everybody look behind you, look to your left, look to your right, look around. That's all right, they're looking behind them, so they're not going to feel weird about it. But see who this is. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to worship for their sake. 
Let us not give up the meeting together as some are accustomed to doing, but let us encourage one another. It's one of the basic purposes that Jesus designed when he said, I'm calling you as my church to come together, to gather together before my word, to take part in my sacrament, to pray together, to worship me, is I want you to do it for each other because they need you every bit as much as you need them the burden this author to the Hebrews shares with us, just as Jesus himself worshipped in the synagogue every single Saturday, as was his custom. Luke chapter 4, it's in there. Jesus went to the synagogue every single weekend, just as he did that. So he charges us to participate in worship with his people, with his church. Don't give up meeting together, because it's not about whether you think you need it this week. It's about being the family of God together. He calls them brothers That's a family relationship where where if you're a Christian, you've been adopted by God the Father. Everybody's not born a child of God. Everybody is born a creature of God. You are adopted. John 1, to those who believed him, who called on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, children born not according to a, a husband's decision or human will, but born of God, born into a family, so that then you can say to your fellow Christian, you are my sister, you are my brother, because we have the same father, and there's a, a family loyalty, a mutual obligation that comes from being the family of God. Once the author to the Hebrews says, brothers, they should already know what's coming, because the family, Let us not give up the meeting together, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Viewing your church not as a consumer product, viewing a worship service not as as worship widgets that you consume or sermon widgets that you consume that you either like or you don't like, but to be here, even if you hate the preaching, even if you can't stand the songs, even if you get nothing out of it, because your brothers need you in worship. You know, family brings responsibility. You understand that. Some of you are parents. You know what it's like to have family obligations, family responsibilities, to have to do things not for your sake, but for their sake. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't look at your kids and say, you know, I don't feel like feeding my kids this week. I, I fed them last week. Yeah, you can't do that. Why? Because they're family. You take care of family. And in the ancient world, This family, as it still does in in much of the the world today, it it includes your brothers and your sisters and your cousins and your aunts and your uncles because the basic unit of society is the family and you are obligated to take care of anyone who is your brother. Think about the flood of opposition that these early followers of Jesus experienced. Uh, You know, this, this letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish followers of Jesus who had been excluded from their synagogues. They'd been abandoned and rejected by their family. Kids, I want you to imagine, kids, what it would be like if you went home and your mom and dad threw you out of the house because you loved Jesus and they didn't want you to love Jesus. And then they locked the doors and you're outside and you're pounding on the door. Mom, let me in. Dad, let me in. And they close the blinds and they close the curtains and they ignore you, and you're out there day after day, day and night, you're getting hungry, you're getting dirty, it's starting to rain, you're all alone, you've lost your mom, you've lost your dad, nobody is there for you, everybody who loved you now doesn't love you anymore. That's what these early Christians experienced. 
They had their businesses taken away from them. Parents, imagine if your spouse leaves you because you love Jesus and your spouse's family doesn't love Jesus and they convince your spouse to divorce you and your spouse takes your children as well. You've lost your spouse. You've lost your home. You've lost your children. You've lost your church, your synagogue. You start to lose your business because people are publicly shaming you and maligning you and talking about you. And then later on, the public shaming, the name-calling, the gossip, the arrests, the prison sentences, as the years would go forward, it would involve being thrown to the lions in the arena. There would be executions. The, the flood of opposition, the flood of suffering that these early Christians experienced every day of their lives. And all they had in that flood of suffering was each other. Because they were family. They were brothers. They took care of their family. They worshipped for the sake of each other. And as the rivers of hate rose around them, they had each other. And they were not going to drown in the flood that surrounded them. I've, I've got a picture here. Could we get that first picture? It explains everything. This, this is a fire ant. Um, fire ants live in lots of places, but they're native to the, 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 the Brazilian rainforest. And, uh, and that's really unfortunate on one level because um, there's one thing that there's a lot of in a rainforest other than trees. Uh, it's called a rainforest because it rains a lot. And these little suckers are completely unable to swim. You drop one of these little guys in even a drop of water, even a teaspoon of water, and he's going to flounder and wiggle around and then eventually bloop, 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 drop down and die. He's going to drown because they can't swim. They're fire ants, and they're native to a rainforest where rain comes down in buckets, washes you off of leaves, down into gullies, on into rivers. And, and yet something happens, actually, as they, as they uh, start to get uh, swept away. Um, let's get that next slide. Um, is, uh, yeah, that's the one. Uh, is, is, uh, this is not a rice paddy. Those are fire ants floating as a raft because they actually grab onto each other. It's, it's fascinating. One research study unlocked the secret of this mystery because after collecting a bunch of ants, the scientists dropped the ants into containers of water. That's why we pay science people the big bucks. They dropped them into water, and what they found is that the ants very quickly spread out and formed themselves into rafts like this, and each individual ant used its claws and the adhesive pads on their legs to grip onto each other. We have a, we have a close-up of that. Let's, let's get closer. Yeah, um, that's the church. At, at first, you know, it just looks like, it looks like this tangle of bodies and limbs everywhere. But the longer you look at this picture, the more you're able to distinguish between the different body parts and see the connection. And then the insects use little pockets of air that form around their bodies in order to keep themselves afloat. And, and one scientific article concluded the, the research sheds light on how deeply social insects act together, almost as if they're part of a superorganism. As one scientist said, the individuals acting together create this awareness of the environment that no individual within it has. You know, where does a fire ant go when the flood starts to rise? He finds his church. He finds his community. He finds his ark of salvation. He was never designed to survive on his own. And neither was I and neither were you. Only as a community only as a part of some super organism, what, what the Apostle Paul calls the body of Jesus Christ in the church, what, what, what Jesus calls his family. 
each one holding on when the waters start to rise. And on your own, you would surely drown when you've got your family, when you've got your church. Family holds on to family. You don't let go of family no matter how high the waters rise. The church is the Lord's ark of salvation. Your brothers and sisters, your church on your own, you will sink. You say, no, pastor, I got this one. I'm good. No, you're not. You're deceiving yourselves. And when the waters rise, you will certainly sink. The lonely Christian is always, always, always the defeated Christian. But together... As the family of God, worshiping together, will float above the waters no matter how high they drown. We will not lose one, not even one. It's the Lord's design for his church. Thank you. Don't give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. Jesus is saying, you need this as much as they do. I want you to worship for their sake, not just for your own. That's love for your spiritual family. It's, it's, it's the one thing, interestingly, there's one thing that will automatically invalidate your worship. We think, oh, what could invalidate my worship? Well, if I've sinned. No, there's the blood of Jesus forgives sin. That's not the issue. You say, oh, well, what if, uh, what if I, I did something horrible on the way to church? Well, you have opportunity to confess that in every single worship service. We're good. God's got your back. He's your Savior. He's your Redeemer. He's your friend. There's one thing, though that will automatically invalidate your worship. It's what, what Elizabeth read today was part of the passage we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, where, where as the Christians gathered for the Lord's Supper, they weren't loving one another. Some people were eating too much and drinking in one corner, while in another corner somebody was going hungry. They didn't recognize the body of Christ there. They didn't love one another. And Paul said, because of this, some of you are sick and others have fallen asleep. The one thing that will invalidate your worship is if you're not worshiping with love for your brothers in Christ. Love for your church as the people of God. Loving Jesus. Responding to Jesus together. So often we Protestants, 500 years after the Reformation, so often we forget this, you know. We assume that it's about me and my personal salvation. We assume every passage of the Bible is about personal redemption. Uh, I'm guilty with the rest. When every passage of Scripture is addressed to the church as a body, that we would live as a body, that we would live as a family together with absolute commitment to one another. One of the oldest known sermon illustrations... uh, I pull it out about once a year, is, is the story of, uh, of a man who is given a, a, a visit, a tour of hell. Goes down into the earth or out beyond the reach of the cosmos, wherever it is geographically, and he, he walks in and there's this dark cavern, and within the cavern there's this huge round table, and around the table are the souls and bodies of the damned. And in the middle of the table is this big, juicy, wonderful bowl of stew. And they're all so hungry, and it smells so good. It's savory. You can, you can actually pick out the spices, a little bit of fennel, a little bit of sage, some rosemary. You can, you can, it's, it's like when you're so hungry and you can smell it. And every one of them has attached to their arm a long spoon. But the spoon is longer than their arm. And with the spoon, they can reach out and they can dip into the bowl of food, but we've got a picture of this. 
as they try to bring it back to their mouth, it overshoots their mouth and they can never get it into their mouth. Always hungry, always wanting, always just out of reach. And then the tour guide asks, now would you like to go through the gates into heaven? And seeing this scene, he says, yes, he needs to get away from this. He can't bear to watch it. And so they go through gilded doors, through a a passage into another room. And it's also a huge cavern. And within this huge cavern in heaven, there's this gigantic round table in the middle. And in the middle of the round table is this urn filled with this savory stew. And it smells so good. And yet he looks around and it's the same people. They got these same awkward, long, way too long spoons attached to their forearms so they can't feed themselves and yet he looks around and they're all a little bit pudgy maybe they put on that freshman 15 he's wondering what's going on and and we've got another picture here because he watches as they reach across the table to feed each other next slide heaven jonathan edwards says is a kingdom of love love for your brothers in jesus The only difference between hell and heaven is that Jesus is in heaven and love is in heaven. Love for the church as the body of Christ. Thank you. That's good. This means not only love for your spiritual family, but loyalty for your spiritual family. And and loyalty is something we don't really talk about in our culture. I mean, there's one context in which we talk about loyalty, and it's in the world of, of retail and airlines and hotels because they all have loyalty programs. But it's ironic because they're actually not loyalty programs, are they? They're, they're actually disloyalty programs because they're programs to manage the innate disloyalty that we as consumer-driven individuals have because we're selfish and we're looking out for, for ourselves. Um, and yet loyalty is one of those things that has to be internally motivated where you're just... You're just cutting out your options beforehand, narrowing your choices in advance and saying, I'm in, I'm in with you long term. I'm committed to you long term. Uh, um, you know, the, the classic story of this is, is from Edinburgh, Scotland, the famous story of a, of a dog and its owner. Uh, it began in the 1850s when John Gray came to the city He had been a gardener, but he was unable to find work as a gardener, so instead John Gray got a job with the city police department as a night watchman. And so every night he would go out and guard the city streets, patrolling them, looking out for any problems. And after a number of years, he began taking out his small Sky Terrier named Bobby. And so John and Bobby would go about the city every night in Edinburgh, uh, taking in the landscape, and they did this for years until John contracted tuberculosis and in the winter of 1858 he passed away and was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard and what happened next became legend in the city and the the history itself is a little bit murky but according to the story Bobby the Sky Terrier would not leave the graveyard in fact he would stay on guard right next to his master's body every single night and every single day, and no matter how hard they tried, the owner uh, or the, the caretaker of the, the graveyard could not get rid of Bobby. He would only leave briefly for periods of time when townsfolk would actually give him food and, and water. Uh, and uh, we got a picture of that. Can we get that picture? Um, 
you know, the caretaker tried to get rid of him. He couldn't. And so eventually he built the dog a shelter um, right near the grave in the graveyard. And when the city passed an ordinance that all unlicensed dogs would be destroyed, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, William Chambers, purchased a license for Bobby and had a collar engraved to hang around the little dog's neck. And until his death, 14 years later, the citizens cared for Bobby while he guarded his master's body. And if you walk to Greyfriars Kirkyard today, you can't miss the statue. We've got a picture of that that's across the street from it. It's a sculpture of Bobby with these words inscribed on the base. Greyfriars Bobby died 14th of January, 1872, age 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. Friends, that's loyalty to your family. Are you loyal to your spiritual family? Are you committed to sticking with them through thick and thin? Are you willing to stand with them through long years ahead? Don't give up meeting together, the author writes, but encourage one another. Jesus saying, I want you to worship for their sake. Thank you. So how's that possible? It's not easy because it's radically countercultural. I mean, our relationships in North American society are largely transactional. Uh, everything is a commodity uh, where consumerism sort of reigns. If, if I you know, go to a grocery store, I go to that grocery store because they have a product that I want and they're offering at a price I am willing to pay. If, however, they change the product or if, however, they change the price, then I will change to a different grocery store in which they will offer the product I want for the price I'm willing to pay. My relationship with, you know, Schnucks or Deerbergs or Straubs or Shop and Save or whoever, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, is transactional. I don't have an innate loyalty to them. Um, we use each other for each other's mutual benefit because both of us are consumers uh, in one sense and we're both offering a product that the other one is willing to pay for. And so that logic, it applies to where we get our oil changed. It applies to doctors we may go to, dentists. It applies to employees that people have in their businesses. Uh, It applies to employers where we may leave. It even applies to cities where if St. Louis isn't really giving you the product you want for the price you're willing to pay, you upgrade to, you know, a a city on the coast. Uh, We do it with spouses. So long as you are offering me a product I want for a price I'm willing to pay, I'm in this marriage. But as soon as you're not offering me a product I want, you change the product or, or I'm no longer willing to pay, then I will upgrade to another spouse. It's the way you do it in North America, and our culture assumes that this is normal. It's how we treat the church as well. It's how we treat our spiritual family. And the Bible's vision is so countercultural that we would, in advance, exclude options and say, I am in this until I know God wants me to be elsewhere because I'm committed because this is my family. It it means holding someone's hand when you have struggles of your own, walking people through very dark periods of suffering, investing over decades in people who one day may walk you to your grave or you may walk them to to, to their grave. It means accepting their idiosyncrasies without pulling back. It's not always easy. Uh, William White shares the story of a European seminary professor named Hans, uh, German, and uh, Hans's wife, he'd been very faithful in his his job, but one year his wife passed away, Enid, and he was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite 
He got severely depressed, and for weeks and months, he could not leave the house. You can imagine, uh, you know, what it would be like where, you know, the, the doors are shut, the window blinds are pulled shut, he's missing appointments, he's substituting uh, uh, other teachers for his classes, he's not returning emails, he's not returning voicemails, he's lost his wife, and he's unable to do his job, and so... So out of concern, the seminary's president and three other faculty members went to his house and paid Hans a visit. And you can imagine them knocking on the door and waiting and waiting and waiting. Five minutes, ten minutes, twelve minutes, they keep knocking. Eventually, the door cracks open and there they see this professor, Hans, in his pajamas in the middle of the afternoon with a bathrobe with red eyes, bleary from weeping. And they walk in, and they sit down in the living room together. And out of concern, the seminary uh, professor and these other professors, they, they, they talk to him. They, they hear what's going on, and he finally confesses that he's struggling with doubt. He says these words. He says, I'm no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in God at all anymore. On the one hand, your heart goes out to him. He's lost his bride. He's alone now. You can picture the shoes in the, in the doorway that never get walked in, the closet full of his former wife's clothing, the coffee mug that she used to pick up every single day, the framed photos on the piano, all of the memories, all of the loss, all of the, the darkness, the hole that fills it up. And yet at the same time, you can also say, but this guy's a seminary professor. He's training pastors how to tell other people about God. And... His faith is wrecked because he goes through a loss. It seems inconsistent. The world would call him a hypocrite. And so he's there with three of his colleagues and a seminary professor, and he says, I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. And they're sitting there looking at him, and after a moment of quiet, the seminary president says, Okay, Hans, then we're going to believe for you. And you can't pray, but we're going to pray for you. And so the men continued to meet with him every single day to pray for him. They didn't leave him on his own. They didn't fire him. They didn't discipline him. They didn't tell him that he needs counseling and then walk off. This was their brother. This was family. It was an issue of family loyalty. They sat with him. They stayed at his side. They didn't tell him what to do. They just loved him, hugged him, held him, prayed for him day after day for months because he wasn't a seminary professor to them. To them, he was their brother. This is spiritual family. Some months later... The friends gathered for prayer with Hans, and Hans smiled, and he said to them, It's no longer necessary that you pray for me. Today, I want you to pray with me. That's church, where people have doubts, where leaders aren't always strong, where sinners get the gospel. A church where brothers can carry each other when they can't carry themselves down. It's not always easy. But it's possible because Jesus has a family loyalty to you, his followers. You have to first experience the saving love of Christ. Look what we read. 
Look at the loyalty that Christ has. He washed you in verse 22. He sprinkled your hearts, your souls, and your bodies have been washed with pure water. All the things that made you dirty, but now in God's eyes you are clean. He's made you acceptable. Jesus is loyal to you. He's washed you, and he's given you now access through his blood. Verses 19, 20, 21. Look at that. The cross of Christ is an eternal reminder of the lengths to which God would go to capture your heart. Because Jesus was rejected on the cross so that you could be accepted. You know, the the most heartbreaking chapter in the Bible is the third chapter of Genesis. It's when our first parents, the first humans, turned their back on God and declared their independence. And as a result, they fell. They became liable to death. The whole cosmos around them that had been under their dominion was broken. And they themselves were broken and they felt shame and God clothed them. And then he sent them out of the garden because they could no longer live in his presence. Because they were broken. They were damaged. They were rebels. And as they left the garden of Eden to the east, there between them and the presence of God, the Bible says, an angel was stationed with a flaming sword so that no one could ever approach God again. Should any dare to approach the presence of God, there would be hell to pay. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born of Mary, fully human, fully God. And what he did is he dealt with that. You see, that separation between us and God in the Old Testament had a tangible physical manifestation between the the holy place and the temple where the priests served and the most holy place, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum where God lived, where God made his presence known. There was a curtain. And through that curtain, no one could go. Priests could not go once a year on, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. The high priest could go to that curtain to offer sacrifice for all the sins of all God's people after multiple steps of purification. But should anybody enter through that under other circumstances, they would surely die because that was the presence of God and that curtain was a barrier. And when Christ went to the cross, we've got an image of that if we could get that up on the, on the screen here. Uh, we've got that, that barrier between us and God. And can we go to the next one? As Christ went to the cross, outside the city, the temple in the distance. As he suffered, as he died, as his body was broken, as his blood was shed. As the darkness fell, what Jesus was doing on that cross is there was hell to pay to gain access to God. There was an angel of judgment with a flaming sword. And the only way to pay the hell that we had coming for us was someone righteous had to go through the sword. And that's what Jesus did. And by his body, he became that bridge through which we could again gain access to God. And what happened as darkness fell upon the earth, as Christ cried his last, as atonement was made and the blood of God atoned for our sins. We've got another picture is that curtain was split in two from top to bottom because God himself split the curtain in two so that we could again gain access to Eden. We could again gain access to the presence of God so that God and man could sit down together at table again. That, friends, 
is the cross that we might access this most holy place through the curtain that is Christ's body, through the blood of Jesus that saved us. That's God's family loyalty to us. There's a story I read of a church in New Zealand, a little mission church. And in this mission church, there was a a tribesman who was a part of the church, and as he went to the church one Sunday, he went up to the altar rail at the front for communion, and as he knelt at that rail, he looked to his side, and he got up, and he quickly rushed out the church and then took a seat eventually back in the very back pew. And then a while went by, and then his friends saw him get up again and go back to the altar and kneel down again to receive communion this time. And his friend asked him what happened. And he said this. He said, when I got up and went to take communion, as I got to the rail, I looked to my side, and right next to me waiting to receive communion was the man who 20 years ago murdered my father. And I thought, this man is a murderer. He has done this against God and against me. He is my enemy. So I got up and I left. I made my way back in and took a seat at the back pew. And as I sat there, I looked up and I saw the cross. And I saw Jesus on the cross. And I saw Jesus weeping for my sin. I saw Jesus bleeding for my sin. I saw Jesus when I was his enemy having mercy upon me and weeping for me and praying for me and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And so I got up and I went back and I took my spot on the altar rail right next to my enemy and I took communion with him because he had become my brother as we enemies of God had been washed by the blood of Jesus and given access into that most holy place through the curtain that is Christ's body. Through that, he was able to come and take part. That's the church, friends. That's the power of God. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, this Reformation Sunday, we approach you through the shed blood of Jesus, through his body that is the curtain, that we might take part in his body and in his blood in this sacrament. We thank you for saving us. We thank you that you look from heaven. And as we break this bread, as we drink this cup, you remember your covenant. You renew your covenant. You remember your promise to save us completely. We consecrate these elements to you now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. Then lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give thanks to our God and Savior through Jesus Christ, His Son, because as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You do not need to be a member of this church or this denomination to take part in this meal. If you are a member in good standing of any gospel-preaching church, any church where Jesus is Savior and Lord, then you are welcome if you're ready to come to Jesus in this, offering to him love for your brothers and a readiness to walk in his gospel. For on that night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take this and eat. This is my body. Do this unto my remembrance.
this as often as you drink it unto my remembrance. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Christ, the sacrifice lamb, has been slain.